Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. We live in a world where the security that we enjoy arises out of more than just physical police forces and military protection. Today's security needs are for both physical world and digital ecosystems. The reason for the defense mechanisms are often quite similar, but the tools we need to build around our networks, data, and connected technology that protect us from digital attacks every day are different. The Munich Security Conference, the oldest continually running international conference in the world, recognizes this reality, and under CEO Dr. Benedict Franco's leadership, he has pivoted to incorporate cybersecurity into his programming. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Franco himself, Vice Chairman and CEO of the MSC, to discuss the enhanced focus towards more cybersecurity tools. Before joining the MSC, Dr. Franco served as Senior Advisor for Strategic Affairs at the Christian Social Union, and previous to that, he was Special Assistant for former Secretary General to the United Nations and Nobel Laureate Kofi Annan. He is an expert on foreign affairs and international relations. Join us as we dive into the weeds on what it takes to host a conference on international security in the cyber age. Benedict, thank you for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. I really appreciated being a guest of yours um, when you were here in Washington about a month and a half ago. What an amazing, uh, you guys had great weather while you were here in, in Washington. So um, for those people who are not that familiar with the Munich Security Conference, which has been around for a really long time, can you just give us a baseline of the work that you all do? And, and I know you've recently become the head of the organization, so I'm sure you've, you've had a lot of fun kind of taking over the, the reins of um, a very well-structured uh, place that people have been discussing security for a long time. Perfect. First of all, Shane, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I'm looking forward to explain to Shane. <laughs> um, the Munich Security Conference is indeed uh, quite an old institution, 60 years old. We believe that we're the world's preeminent forum for the debate of foreign and security policy. We are much more than an annual conference, but people do know us for our annual meeting in Munich every February. Uh, we've now had it 60 times, um, founded by one of the resistance fighters against Hitler and uh, started with a strong transatlantic focus on trying to get the German and the uh, American elites back together. And obviously, as security has become uh, a much broader issue, our conference has broadened its focus. And so today, we are a pretty big organization dealing with all kinds of security definitions from hardcore security issues like tank procurement and hypersonic missiles to cybersecurity and some of the softer aspects of security like food or water security or even access to education. So our, our portfolio has grown and unfortunately security is a growth market these days and so we're quite busy preparing uh, the next couple of meetings and especially our big conference taking place in February, so just a couple of weeks away. And I wish you lots of luck on that. Uh, yeah, it's been interesting to just learn about your history and see, like you, you said, you really expanded your um, your mission because so many things really fall under the the security element now. Um, and it's interesting that you added education. I think that's that's a great additional component. Uh, I focus on the kind of the digital economy part. So you did a, a paper. I think last year there you talked about security proofing and some of the challenges that we have when it comes to our digital economy and um, the fact that 
the way that we manage things now is not just kinetic when it comes to um, war, but we also have the challenges of all of our devices that are, um, you know, that are near and dear to us and making sure that they continue to stay safe. So can you tell us about the the paper that you guys came out with last year? Sure. And in fact, we came, we came out with it just ahead of the invasion, which obviously has refocused attention on all the different ways that you can actually fight a war. And our point was, even before it happened, that our freedom isn't necessarily only defended in the fields of Ukraine, but also in our smart devices, in our critical infrastructure, in our democratic processes, and generally in the way that we structure and lead our lives. And so what what we said is that it is very dangerous and very short-sighted not to accept the fight where the illiberals want to have it. And so we need to get better at mapping our own vulnerabilities, at understanding our own dependencies, and at strengthening our soft underbelly. And this soft underbelly really is is the digital world, uh, because it's access not only to hearts and minds, but to our entire lives. And so what we did ask and what we did call for was really for actors like our national governments, alliances like NATO and the European Union uh, and, and others to think about every policy and every regulation, not only just through the lens of, you know, does it um, help in the fight against climate change? Is it fair? Does it help growth? But also, does it make us safer? And we picked out a couple of examples in this case, from the European Union, where policies were great from a competition point of view or fairness point of view or an economic and industrial point of view, but disastrous from a security point of view. And we will certainly never ever get into the business of, you know, criticizing regulations per se. But what we want to do is to ensure that there is a process before regulations are decided upon that includes a debate on the security aspect of things. Let me give you an example. The current, still current discussions about the App Store uh, are such an example. You know, it may at first sight be a really good idea to force, you know, actors like Apple to open up the App Store to everyone under the sun Um, because it's fair to open it up and it may create more competition, which is then better for the consumer. That's all fair. But taking away a proven layer of protection without offering an alternative seems pretty unwise from a geostrategic point of view, where we need to do everything to protect our citizens from the influence operations of the liberals of this world. And so, you know, coming back to what I've said at the beginning, we need to get away from this idea that that war is just kinetic. And yes, funnily enough, the Ukraine conflict is very kinetic. And we all expected, you know, lots of cyber attacks to precede an invasion, which didn't happen, or at least not to the extent that we thought. But let's not make the mistake and believe that it will always be like this. And and let's continue to prepare for non-kinetic conflicts. And that means um, working hard to protect our critical digital infrastructure. I was very impressed uh, at the conference that I attended this fall, how you had a lot of, um, I'll say, kind of old guard who've been doing this for a long time, really embraced the challenge of digital and realized that they had to 
be very sincere in their efforts because if we failed at this layer of it, it would have so many ramifications on the other parts that were going on. And Ukraine is a, a perfect example. Um, and we, you know, we've, there's so many things that we have learned the lesson. A lot of it is like you and I are both talking on a, probably a laptop, uh, you know, doing this podcast is the things that we didn't have the layers of protection in that, in the laptop layer and the device. And I, I'm always worried about the network stack. Um, and now, as you mentioned, we have the um, the ability that we've learned things for this digital device is amazing thing that we have in our pockets all the time. I'm never without my phone. Uh, and they, the, the idea of opening it up, just, I look at it and I'm like, it's just going to become a cesspool. <laughs> it's going to, and, and then I think about how, you know, all the stories we've heard about, you know, some of the pro and con on um, different, you know, war elements where they've been able to trace people. I mean, some of it goes back to even like, you know, the 2012 back to going back to Crimea, they were able to, you know, trace where people were because of geolocation and people just don't realize how much information flows off of that device and how important it is. And we definitely want, you know, our military people to be as safe as possible in a war environment, which is a very tough um challenge to get that balance right but we don't we need to learn those lessons and not bring them into the civilian uh area so i'm, I'm very concerned about that so i'm glad you brought that up i mean you know i i always loved that example and i think it was a special forces camp in afghanistan where our adversaries were able to get the exact location but not only the location also the exact outline of the perimeter because our servicemen and women uh, used their phone to play music while they were running, you know, they're right, doing yeah. running. obviously they run on the inside of the security perimeter every day. And so if you just track that, you have the exact outline of the security perimeter, which was then very helpful to, you know, align mortars and, and, and other things. And so, yes, raising awareness is one thing, uh, making it more difficult for the bad guys to abuse our dependency on digital devices is another. And then making sure that we use the power, the positive power of the internet to not only protect, but spread democracy is yet another issue. And I, I always, you know, fear that with this discussion of technology, it's so easy to fall into the fall, uh, into the trap in a way of just being negative about it and just seeing the risks and not necessarily seeing the enormous potential of the internet and, and social media to, to spread good. And, and hence, you know, you may have seen our transatlantic to-do list that we published just after the meeting that we had yes, in yeah. a couple of weeks ago. And on there is, is really this, this action item that as the transatlantic community, we need to get a hell of a lot better at protecting the free and open internet. We must ensure that there is no fragmentation of the internet. We must ensure that there are no national protocols and we must ensure that it is easier for us to use the internet to do good than it is for the other side to use the internet to do bad. Yeah, that's an, that's an amazing challenge. I've been following a lot of the things about the dark web and, you know, you realize somebody wrote a great article where they said, you know, if you're doing this for evil, you basically, there's all these things you don't have to deal with. Like you don't have to deal with the admin, you know, so, so part of it. You don't have to get approval from people. You just plug in and start making money doing horrible things until somebody, you know, finds you and makes you stop. So uh, it, it is, you know, it's one of those, I, I very much fear the, you know, the challenges of the internet as I've been working in this space for a long time uh, that, 
we want to make sure that the information flow is there for anybody who has, um, you know, has access and access is such a huge issue. I was just uh, at a meeting over in Ethiopia and you realize they're just, we don't hear about it a lot in the United States, just governments that just constantly, they just turn off parts of their country. They just aren't happy with the citizens in a certain area. And they just, you know, the combination of power and, you know, the, the internet, they just turned off and it becomes very challenging. You know, you're going back to a, a decade where you're, you're, your, your phones aren't going to work. Nothing's going to work. You're, you're kind of trapped until somebody will, you know, put that power back on and make sure that you can stay connected. And it, that is a huge fight. Listen, so what do you guys have that as part of your you know priority list? Yes. Um, it, it's not on, on the list of action items, but it will be a key theme of next year's conference. Um, or sorry, this year's conference in this, this case. We're almost there. Right. We're, we're going to 2023. There. We're heading in. We're, this will um, be the- we are absolutely concerned by this um, sort of national rule setting that diverges from the international norms and standards. And so we need to get better as the West, as the Transatlantic Alliance, uh, at understanding these countries and the reasons why they turn off you know, parts of the internet. And what we would have to do to tackle some of these concerns, because sometimes really it is um, it is uh, perceptions that are not based on on true facts, and sometimes intelligence sharing can help to dispel some of the concerns of these governments. And I mean, you just mentioned Ethiopia; that's a case where I think you can make a very good case for you need the internet to provide humanitarian aid, you need the internet to do X, Y, and Z, which is all in the very interest of the national government and that the malign use of the internet, even through the eyes of a biased government, doesn't outweigh the gains. And so I think we, we just need to get better at engaging at eye level with these actors and also drawing red lines. I know that red line drawing isn't a very popular thing, but we need to make sure that this is ostracized and that access to the free and uh, you know open internet is, is a basic right, a basic human right. And it sounds pretty ridiculous, but how do you want to ensure adequate education if you don't have the internet? And and so there are there are a lot of good reasons for, for making this a basic human right. Yeah, um, Freedom House does a really good job of trying to keep tabs on that. And I'm always amazed that, you know, just you look at the numbers and they're up in the 300 plus, you know, people that have governments that have turned off the internet on their citizens this year alone. And, and you're like, it just doesn't even make news. I mean, people don't understand how important that is. Um, taking a turn, you wrote a book, um, Art of Diplomacy, which is such a beautiful read. And you did it as a tribute to um, Wolfgang Ischinger, who was um, the, the head of your your security conference for a long time. But I really, I found so many of the, the things that you discuss in that book or the, the, the lessons that people talked about were so vital because it's a reminder that even if we're dealing with digital issues, there are just so many elements of diplomacy and the importance of what we, you know, what you guys do over at the Munich Security Conference that are vital to a lot of, you know, keeping us in an in international, you know, an in international stance of peace and, and working with each other. So tell us about the book. That, that that's a it's a really fun read. Thank you so much. Uh, we love doing it. I would probably never do it again. One hundred contributors. That was a, a lesson in applied editing diplomacy. 
um, some some really uh, funny and entertaining backstories, which I'm I'm happy to share. But you know, the, when people ask me, what's the one lesson? You know, out of these 100 chapters, what's the one necessary ingredient of successful diplomacy? It's trust, creating, generating, maintaining trust, and I. I'm always struck by the parallel between the art of diplomacy and the art of cyber, because in cyberspace, trust is everything. If you've lost it once, it's very hard to regain. A lot of the processes, you know, like online voting, um, a lot of e-commerce, that all depends on our ability to generate mutual trust. And so I think if one reads the book, The Art of Diplomacy, and one replaces diplomacy by cyber, uh, I think most of it is still valid. And so the, the, the Munich Security Conference has placed a premium on trust in cyberspace for a long time. We helped to found the Charter of Trust, where a couple of dozen leading companies around the world are engaging in a way to certify levels of trust. And if you look at our transatlantic to-do list, there actually is an item on certification. And certification means building trust. And so if if any of you out there in this world are interested in the main conclusion of our book, really just read the openly available chapter on trust and diplomacy. And that's really our blueprint for everything that we do at the Munich Security Conference. Oh, that's fantastic. It is so true. The um, When I first started there, a lot of what the internet still runs on is not contract law. It is a trust element amongst the engineers. And when you learn that and then you tell it to a lawyer, they're like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, it's, you know, they just said, you're going to connect my network, connect my work network. And that's, you know, the routing whole, the whole lot of the routing system just is because the networks, when they got connected to each other and it was, it took them a long time before somebody decided to do bad things on that. And they're like, we need to rethink this. This is not going as, it's not as utopic as it was when the very beginning, in the beginning, it was fantastic. So trust is a huge issue as well as I know identity management is something that we're all kind of trying to learn about. If we go to a zero trust model and um, you know, there's, there's, a lot of um, interest in building that, but then you all, you know we get into a lot of issues of you know how do we how do we manage making sure that people are who they say they are you know on on the internet and who gets to be the the purveyor of deciding that. So I, I look forward to seeing the work that you guys are doing. Give us a little preview. So what do you have planned for twenty twenty three? So you know we we have over the years we've always tried to avoid one theme because by you know definition if you boil down this crazy world to one theme, you will always lose and it will always be too abstract. Um, but then again, people have misread the titles of our reports for our basic theme. And I think both Westlessness in 2020 and Helplessness in 2022 were pretty good terms to describe, you know, the, the, the sort of the general feeling at the time of our conference, which is always in, in mid-February. We thought about lawlessness for a while for 2023. Um, we just don't think it's right. And so what we will do and what we will be looking at really is this idea of revisionism, that there are quite a lot of regimes and individuals that want to turn back progress made that aren't happy with the international rules-based order and they want to reinterpret it or erode it or even totally abolish it. And that this systemic competition that everyone keeps talking about isn't necessarily between the US and China or between European Union and Russia. 
it's not even between democracies or autocracies or between the global south and the global north. It's really between those countries that believe that the international rules-based order can be a basis for future cooperation and those that see it as a threat and are actively working to undermine it. And that is a longer list than we would like. If you remember the, the two um, votes in the UN General Assembly on Ukraine, one in early March and one in September, was always the same 38 countries that abstained on very simple questions. And so what we will focus on during 2023 is to understand why these countries abstained and what we would need to do to convince them of the inherent benefits of the current global governance mechanisms and what we would need to do to, in a way, pull them off the fence. And um, that means we need to take their concerns more seriously. That means we need to fulfill our promises. And that means we need to avoid double standarding. And there is a totally legitimate argument by many of these countries that we, the West, the Transatlantic Alliance, we quite often don't stick to our own rules and we interpret them as we see fit. You know, why do we treat Ukraine differently from the war in Yemen or Libya or Ethiopia at that? And so I think there are some very uncomfortable conversations to be had. And Munich will again try to be the place to have them. That sounds fascinating. I'd love to be in some of those conversations of fly on the wall, those 38, see what they finally say. Like, you know, like, you know, why are why are we like you know you have not been listening to me? I've had the same problem for twenty years, and you guys haven't come forward on resolving it. Well, th- th- I look forward to seeing the work that you guys are going to do in twenty twenty three and going forward. And I just want to thank you for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. It's been wonderful to to get it to interact with you. Thanks so much, Shane. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.